this is your strange and beautiful life. Hi, everybody, and welcome to This Is Your Strange and Beautiful Life. My name is Erica J. Schmidt, and on my podcast, I talk to people who may or may not have had the chance to transform their lives into spectacular TED Talks. And today we have part one of a glorious two-part interview with Paul de Touré, a charming writer and fringe performer. You're going to hear all about Paul and his work. It is a delightful interview. I loved it. You don't want to miss it. But first, let's let's just do a little check-in. So, my friends, dear friends, how are you doing? I hope you are having a reasonable to splendid week, but no pressure. I'm actually I'm having a fabulous week. I was, however, leading up to this feeling like really craptacular. I'm going to get into that I'm working on a solo episode. It's like kind of exciting, isn't it? But I'll just say like I've decided that the key to my despair when I get really down, the solution is creativity. Like at the risk of being a motivational speaker, that's fine. Like why not? Motivational speakers are great. But I really need some kind of focus, something to work toward. It can be writing, but... When I'm feeling not great, I find that writing is a lot of pressure and I just there's a lot of like grief around it and I I just feel terrible. It can make me feel terrible about myself. So some other form. Uh, One thing that has been really great is a couple weeks ago I worked on a live storytelling performance for a show called Confabulation and that was very grounding. I always find that soothing and healing, if also terrifying. Um, But yeah, it can be lower stakes than that. You could clean your closet. Uh, Something else that could be really easy to do is go to the drugstore or go to wherever you get your photos printed off. Take your phone and just get some new photos and redecorate your fridge. Just like the photos can make such joy, bring such joy into your lives and just like sort of change what you look at every day it does it doesn't have to be hard it's it's better if it's not but this week my creative project that like not to be dramatic but literally it is giving me the will to live it makes such a huge difference uh is this podcast and it's just been such a a soothing and tangible process to get to prepare the interview record it um now editing is a hell of a lot of work but once you figure out the software, like I am certainly no expert, but like it's it's just it's so concrete. It's such it's so beautiful that way. So I am so thankful for this outlet. I am thankful for Paul for showing up. He was one of my first guests and he shared lots of insights that have already like influenced me the last couple of days. It's really stuck with me. And I decided not to cut very much. Because you never know what nugget is going to stick with somebody. And you know what? Why not be audacious and just throw out a whole bunch of content? And yeah, so so here we go. Here's how this episode kind of runs. We talk about the exquisite and creative niche events in Montreal and how they have changed our lives Paul's debut performance at one of such events, his storytelling debut at Confabulation. We talk about emotionally ill-equipped parents and how to not become a bitter and resentful jerk when you grow up. Uh, What else? How to be a loving parent, friend, or partner, even if you didn't get everything you needed when you were little. Uh, how how to build confidence. And then we end with a doozy of a listener question brought to us from Attached. Uh, thank you, Attached. Uh, but I'm very sorry because Attached is stuck in a devastating, stagnant relationship. So we're so lucky she wrote to us. And she's lucky too because, yeah, we need she needed some advice. And 
So this is a jam-packed episode, and so let's get right to it. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Paul, and I'll see you on the other side. Okay. Oh, wait. I'm going to play you out. Love you. Love you. Goodbye. Ready for this? (laughs) Hi, everybody. Welcome to This Is Your Strange and Beautiful Life, and... Today we have a real live guest right in front of me. His name is Paul de Touré, right? Good. Okay. And Paul is a writer, a fight choreographer, a non-practicing biologist, a retired Kung Fu teacher, and a self-described Swiss Indian weirdo. Paul has written, produced, and directed countless plays as part of the beloved Montreal Fringe Festival. And this year, 2023, he is thrilled and delighted to be creating and performing his first ever solo show. It's called Nine Lives and Eight Near Misses, Life Lessons from Near-Death Events. And it will be playing at the freestanding room. There's a wild run. It's, well, I'll give you the dates at the end, but it's June 2nd to the 18th. You have 10 chances to see these shows. Maybe you would like to go twice. Paul, welcome to This Is Your Strange and Beautiful Life. How are you feeling? You are my first guest after my grandmother's. I am feeling great. Thank you for the invitation. This is my first podcast. Oh my goodness. So, So. and it's my second podcast. And we are at the magical Treehouse Palace, my apartment. And yeah, thanks for coming. And also thank you for agreeing to not sit on a chair because I don't have any. So you do yoga, I think, maybe, or you stretch, right? That's I literally don't do either of those things. Really? I thought you did stretching. Well, I practiced Kung Fu for a long time. That's how I earned my living for about 10 years. Oh. And there was always a bit of stretching in there. But I am, you know, for, for an Indian person, I am remarkably uninterested in yoga and unflexible. I also find static stretching to be hella boring. Yeah. So I do a lot of exercises that are like... I suppose, close to yoga, and I know how to do a sun salutation. And I've been to a few yoga classes, and I always enjoy myself. But uh, no, I don't. Okay. And, and I do a lot of active mobility instead of stretching because it's it's less boring for me. Okay, great. Well, I quit yoga. I spent 10 years not making my living as a yoga teacher, but devoting my life to a yoga cult, and I don't I do not do that anymore. So I'm, I feel a kindred and somebody who doesn't stretch. That's wonderful. Oh, yeah. So everybody is probably dying to know how we met um we met at confabulation so who doesn't know what confabulation is maybe two of my listeners what do you think we should tell them what that is it is a live storytelling show english in english montreal right yep and it is true stories so no props no gimmicks no no magic tricks and no fiction these are real regular people getting up in front of a big crowd of regular, very friendly and generous audience members and telling a true story, something that happened to them, um, which I think is uh, pretty cool. I had known Matt Goldberg, who's the, I guess, creator and founder of Confabulation. Yeah, he founded it like 14 years ago. Yeah, it's the 13th season, mainly through his work with Uncalled For, which in my opinion is one of the greatest sketch comedy troops of all time. And um, and then I always knew that one of Matt's side projects was Confabulation, and I liked the name, and I always meant to go for years and years and never did. That's such a long time and to not go. I know, and then it was a pandemic, and then et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then when the possibility of this solo show started to become a reality in the last few months, I thought, oh, well, this might be a pretty good training wheels type session to see what it's like to tell a story from my life in front of strangers so yeah we met at the march edition mm-hmm. um and you were there uh, with your friend i was no wait no i didn't have a friend that time you had you a friend were... at strip spelling bee yeah that's right two saturdays in a row right everybody's riveted to know we ran into each other the next saturday because one of my best friends sherwin has these quirky events called strip spelling bee so it's very fun to live in montreal because you can go to confabulation on one saturday then the next saturday you can go to strip spelling bee and so what is and strip- then after strip spelling bee if you want you can hot foot it down the main to cafe cleopatra and check out barioke Bari- what's barioke barioke is exactly what you think it is it's strip karaoke 
Oh, Bariyoki, right. right. But yeah, not bear like the grizzly bear, bear like Did you bear do that after Strip Spelling Bee? You like got your kicks on. But people, wait, people don't know what Strip Spelling Bee is. In case you're listening and you don't know what Strip Spelling Bee is, should we tell the people? Sherwin does amazing quirky events. Sherwin's a genius illustrator and prolific creative force here in Montreal. And they've done, I own most of what they've published, graphic novels and pseudo haikus and all kinds of great stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but out and about, I think they might best be known for their self-described quirky events. The first one I went to was Slow Dance Night, mm-hmm. which is all slow dances all night long. It's so nice. It's prom just a night big, with a, a happy big, ending. A big cuddle. What it's, did you call it? Happy... He calls it prom night, but with a happy ending. Oh, yeah, right? yeah, right. And then he's done other things. Strip Spelling Bee is probably the next most popular one where there's six adventurous people who get up and do three rounds of trying to spell impossible words completely like impossible just words no like the smartest people have no idea what they're talking no, like these no are, idea <clears throat> these are not even necessary oxford english dictionary words they are like scripts sure spelling when, be technically an english word that you've never heard of sherwin says these words are hard as my cock <laughs> and that's like the whole event um and then the people are like oh can you use the word in the sentence and he says the most unhelpful sentences it's just like yeah yeah but i have found it to be first of all again you have a really appreciative crowd uh people can strip as much or as little as they want to so some people will get right down to nothing after three rounds others will stop with their underwear or their top or whatever it's totally up to yeah what the, the nipple tassels some people are fancy some people are not fancy yeah. it's very humanizing it's one of the most human and warm and accepting and diverse events i've ever been to i always come out of there feeling like i'm closer to the rest of humanity and also like i've done a bit of work or i've had a bit of great work done to me in deprogramming a bunch of body issues yeah because most of us only see ourselves naked or maybe a lover and even then i don't and, really even bother looking at myself naked you know what i mean like right. i just it's just an avoid i'm like just don't think right. much about it so <clears throat> when we see naked people it's usually in fiction right it's yeah. in movies or tv or or like you know porn or whatever but the or, or or on magazine covers if it's bikini models and because that's almost all the depictions of nudity that we see in mainstream culture, we couldn't easily forget that we are only seeing people who are paid to be naked. These are professional naked yeah, people, right? Yeah, and it's right? a lot of work to be naked like that. Yeah, and like, these, they don't look like that every day. They don't look like that in real life. You know, yeah. whenever you see, um, you know, the superhero actors doing their shirtless scene, Hugh Jackman has been very transparent about what it takes to look like he does um, in the one scene in a Wolverine or X-Men movie where he's shirtless. He's like, yo, it's 16 weeks. I look like that for 36 hours and it's it almost kills me. Like he does like a bunch of planks or what? Like it's like... Oh. He has to do a stupid amount of bodybuilding and essentially what they... I know a little bit about this because I got certified as a personal trainer and I'm just really interested in everything to do with nutrition and health and exercise. Right. You have to alternate between eating a ton of calories and a ton of protein and working out with a lot of weights to build a lot of muscle for like say four to six weeks. Mm-hmm. Then you switch to a quasi-starvation diet. No, um, no, no. <clears throat> right? To like lose as much fat as you can while still eating lots of dry chicken breasts and broccoli to maintain the muscle mass and then lose as much fat as you can and then go back on another muscle kick and then go down to another... Uh, yeah. like fat burning kick it's not sustainable and this is our strange and beautiful yeah. life we do not advocate any um any kind of diet or food restrictions we're he very not allergic either to it yeah like he's very aware that he's like and he i've seen him on a talk show talk about this and he's like a don't do this ever b i you know i do it because it's my job and i was paid to do it but it's not healthy. I don't want you to think I look like that all the time. And I want you to know that when you see me looking like that, I'm very close to death. Yeah, I'm massively grouchy. dehydrated. I can't think straight. You know, my eyes are blurred. It's not a healthy state to be in. And I mean, he can't really bite the hand that feeds him. He's on a talk show promoting a movie he got paid millions of dollars to do. Right. But he did as much as he could to try to set the record straight about what, how distorted that view of human bodies is so i think that you know considering that he's like a tall rich white guy movie star and doesn't need to do any of those things you know i'll give him at least props for that yeah and then we have like strip spelling bee where it's just like everyone is welcome i think that is sort of the point of it right like and 
And there's even a naked dance party at the end, which I've never really partaken in. I mean, have you seen people get naked at the end? I saw a few people the first time I went, and I thought, okay. I've never seen it really blossom into something that would qualify as a full-fledged naked dance party. I've seen a couple... I seem to recall I've seen a couple of the actual contestants who spelled and stripped, Mm -hmm. maybe like revert to their (laughs) formerly nude state or a couple of other people. But, um, but the point is it's a, it's a completely welcoming space and you, it's, it's wonderful to see people of all genders and orientations and especially body types decide to be joyfully, exuberantly, positively naked and have a bunch of strangers hooting and hollering approval and applause and acclaim and bariochi is much the same thing but obviously with no spelling and way more alcohol but the vibe is still so welcoming and inclusive that uh, i always come away from that feeling better for it and i could never possibly do that on stage (laughs) no i feel like some of us are naked in other ways like i'm kind of just naked the way I am with my clothes on you know like I'm, and other people need to take their clothes off right that's my theory about that but you went to you went to strip spelling bee and bariochi in one night that's very festive well yeah I mean I'm a I'm a I, I'm not a full-time single parent but I have my son you know at least half the time so when when he's with me I'm a hundred percent dad and obviously I don't get to go to these things so you know when I have evenings off I'll I'll try to take advantage of it and I also believe in these sorts of independent alternative events and I try to make a point of bringing someone bringing a friend of mine who's never been Mm -hmm. that I think might like it or at least I hope they like it I know they'll have their minds blown a little bit and it's done a lot for me to understand some of the programming I had about you know appropriate bodies or inappropriate bodies or that whole issue of body image on that note the most helpful thing for me was discovering martial arts Okay. I was 20 and I started doing it when I was in university. It was just like an activity you could do for super cheap. And, you know, I think lots of little boys watch kung fu movies and want to grow up and do some pussy Mm -hmm. stuff. But I was always the smallest kid in my class. I was Mm -hmm. tiny. I was skinny. Not the smallest boy, like the smallest child. Even in high school, you're not that short. No, but my my father uh, and his brother and me all had a growth spurt that comes very, very late. Okay. Right? So we were tiny until about like maybe 16, which is almost the end of high school here in, in Quebec. Quebec yeah. um, and then by the time I got to Sejap University, I got up to my height now, which is normal human mm-hmm. adult height, the average. But it was funny for quite a few years. I still had, I was still tiny in my head. Okay. Right? I didn't think I was, I still felt small, small. And I was always very, very skinny. And I was never very athletic and I had asthma when I was a kid. Um, and I wasn't really good at sports, you know? So when I discovered martial arts and I happened to find a a school and a teacher that were great for me. It was a real revelation because suddenly it was not about how tall you were, how big you were, how strong you were, or what your body looked like. It was entirely about what it could do. Mm -hmm. And Um, techniques and... And constant improvement. It didn't matter like who's... And we had a a school where there weren't really colored belts. So you'd walk in and everybody's wearing the same black t-shirt and black pants. Mm -hmm. And you don't know who's good, who's bad. Or no, you don't know who's been there for a long time and who's a beginner. And sometimes people that you think that just look totally normal will just start busting out levels of insane skill that just leave you blown away. And I'm like, oh, okay, so this is a thing you can get good at, but it won't even show. So that means that anybody on the street could be this good. So I should probably mind my manners, (laughs) you know? Right. But it also gave me a lot of a positive path where my teacher was always like, don't compare yourself to others. Oh, I'm the just, worst at comparing myself just to others. Just try to be better than you were last class. Try to fix so nice. one thing. Yeah. And so I remember I had been doing it many, many years, like three, four, five, six years, and I still consider myself a beginner. And even when I demonstrate some skill and non-martial arts friends are like, oh my God, you're awesome. I'm like, I'm not that good. My teacher's pretty good. Mm-hmm. And my teacher would model that. He's like, I'm not very good. My teacher's good. So there was always this idea of respect for the effort you put in. Mm-hmm. And again, it doesn't matter what you look like. The word Kung Fu doesn't mean martial arts. It means hard work. Oh. It means skill achieved through persistent effort. So in Chinese culture, if you are a great chef, people will say, you have good Kung Fu. If you are a skillful painter or calligrapher, they'll say, that guy's Kung Fu is really good. 
You know, if she's a great dancer, they'll say, oh, her Kung Fu is solid. So it's not about martial arts. It's about devoting yourself to a practice that you then improve. So a yoga master has good Kung Fu. You just keep putting in the effort. Yeah, it's this obvious secret that if you keep trying, you'll get better. You'll get better. And for you too, you get better for you because you can also, we don't have to be masters at things. It's just like to improve on your path. Although sometimes I do feel in certain things you get stuck, for example, writing, but you could still put forth effort without improving. And that still counts maybe as Kung Fu. You know, I don't know about the writing thing. I've never really thought about it that way, but I did notice that Kung Fu taught me something about progress, which I've then noticed is actually a common feature of improvement in almost any skill. And uh, strength coaches know this. People who train athletes know this. We're used to trying to think of progress as this like constant diagonal line that just goes goes up over up, time, up, up, yeah. right? Well, if I'm going three times a week and I'm, I'm training an hour and a half each time. That works I'm, when you're 10. Of course. Well, it works at the beginning of anything, Yeah. right? When you first start playing ukulele, you... Yeah, it's I have true. 0% on a... talent on day one. Yeah. And then you slowly improve pretty I'll consistently and you yeah, plateau. You, so it turns Our out words. that everything's like that. You increase for a while. And then even though you put in consistent effort, you plateau for a long time to the point where you start to get frustrated and nothing's happening. And often what happens is just about when you're thinking about giving up, this is stupid. My teacher sucks. I have no talent. A huge leap happens almost overnight. No, I want the overnight. <laughs> and and then you might start increasing for a while and there'll be another plateau. So even if the effort is totally consistent on an increasing line in terms of hours of per week of practice, skill, strength, flexibility, ability in almost anything, it's these stepping stones. It's it's kind of like a video game where you have to like accumulate a certain amount of points before you unlock the next level, right? So whether you've got 10% of the points you need or 90% of the points you need, you're still at level two. But once you get to... The thousand points or whatever click you're immediately at level right. three and you've got all these new you're abilities launched to something a new yeah. stage well that's heartening and also requires patience but that's okay but then back to confabulation yes. so well, i mean i digressed very quickly that's excellent I, that's so fun to digress but yes yeah, so we everybody you know the whole course of me and paul's interactions so first confabulation then strip smelling bead then Paul's like, oh, you know, like I could, he went to confabulation. He's like, I could do a story. Mm -hmm. I go to the show once and then I'm just going to do the story. And he did it a couple of Saturdays ago. I also did a story and, and Paul nailed it. He opened the show. Matt Goldberg was like, Erica, can you open the show? I was like, no, absolutely not. Um, <laughs> please make Paul do it. He'll be great. Did you say that? I actually did. <laughs> you didn't You didn't just refuse yourself. You suggested me. Yeah, I did. Like, uh, oh, by the way, there's this bus coming. I've got the perfect guy to throw under it. Paul is going to be great. And so he nailed it. But we're not going to do the whole story, but maybe we can give the Coles notes. So it's about you grew up with a, f a very like an extremely frugal father. Can you give a few examples of what that means? Okay, so classic, you know, the thermostat's always turned down as low as possible. We're never just eating out. We never get pizza delivery or, or junk food of any kind. He, he controlled all the money. He gave my mom like this ridiculously small amount of money to get groceries to feed four kids. Four um, kids? No, sorry, a family of four, four two kids, okay. two kids. Um, and he's but, from, because uh, you're Swiss Indian, who is... So my father was Swiss, my okay. mother was from India. They yeah. met here in Canada doing their studies. Okay. And, and you know, got married. Optimistic. Yeah, and he, yeah, he was, he was just extremely frugal. Like, he, there's lots of frugal Swiss people, but... I mean, during my whole childhood, dessert was either always apples or oh, bananas. Oh, what a buzzkill. Like, there's no ice cream. Ugh. There's no cake. He'd roll out special stuff when he'd have guests over for dinner. Then, of course, oh my God, there's hors d'oeuvres, there's dessert, there's ice cream, there's six kinds of booze. He's a genial host. But for us, no. Mm. Um, and didn't he quit using toilet paper at some point? Oh my God. So when I was in my teens... Yeah, he stopped using toilet paper. Like, I got to tell you, he's an electrical engineer. He's got a PhD. He's making crazy money. He's traveling the world, presenting at prestigious conferences. He's a consultant all over. And he's like, nope, nope, toilet paper is wasteful and expensive. And it's, it's you know, I mean, there was no such thing as recycled toilet paper at the time. So he just stops using it and, and just decides to go full on bidet style, right? Now, there's bidets in Europe. And obviously, in a lot of Asian countries, people just use water and soap because they don't have toilet paper and mm -hmm. they have different kinds of toilets. But 
we don't have we didn't have a bidet in our house no okay so, so he was doing he, the left just, hand situation in our bathroom sink uh, that's yeah. a bit upsetting right i mean well you know that's where i brush my teeth yeah okay so <laughs> um, what was your dad's name if you don't mind claude claude yeah. okay so claude had yeah it seemed like he was a man of great conviction and so then you wanted, you were 10 years old, the best age of child, and you wanted, what an extravagant gift. I wanted a digital watch, right? So I think people, maybe kids are a bit younger when they get their first watch with like Mickey Mouse hands. Maybe you're like eight, seven or eight. Yeah, that's how um, old I was. But yeah. this was, this was the beginning of digital watches, right? Like this was a thing yeah. where a consumer model of digital watches came out and it very much represented the future um, <laughs> because there's a light, there's an alarm, there's all these features oh, that classic analogs yeah. don't have, right? If you had a analog watch and there were little like glow in the dark dots on the 12 spots with light and on the hands so that in the middle of the night you'd look at your watch and you could kind of make out the There's time special future right uh, but this is like no there's a watch and a light and um so i want a digital watch and i don't know if anybody remembers the consumers distributing catalog but it was this no. it was the kind of a precursor this super low budget version of amazon where like they had stores but the stores didn't have all the stuff okay they'd mail this full color catalog of all the stuff like they had everything the bay would have or, or like sears and you'd look at the catalog, you'd call them up, you'd order it, and then you'd go to their outlet store and they'd have it there for you. So they didn't have to keep all the stock in the right. store. The store could okay. be a lot smaller. And, you know, man, that catalog was my best friend. you just mm -hmm. pour through the pages and see all the stuff you wanted. And when, when my birthday rolled around, my dad gave me a digital watch. And this is the kind of guy who... If I wanted a 10-speed bike for my birthday, I'd be getting like a used book on geography that he got oh. at a yard sale for a quarter. So right. this is the first time Shafted. in my life that I got something actually close to what I wanted. I was thrilled. We didn't get the stopwatch future though, right? Like you No, were no, like no. The, I got the entry-level yeah, $19 model. stopwatch, I really related to that in your story. You were like just timing things yeah. as a 10-year-old. was like crack. Like why, what else would you want to do with your time than just time things? Your like, timing, little races. Like, like I remember we, we my sister and I, we used to like, time, okay, how fast can you get dressed in the morning? Yeah. Put on your pajamas and get into your play clothes no, for I, summer. You're like, ooh, 13 seconds, wee. Yeah, you know? I can definitely relate to yeah. that. Yeah. So that, you didn't get that. That, but you got the no, no. The, that was a thirty nine ninety nine dollar purchase. Yeah, and, okay. And he got me the nineteen ninety nine purchase, which had an alarm and a light and a countdown, but no stopwatch. But I was still, countdown I was still thrilled. Kind of cool, yeah. Yeah, the countdown's cool, but the stopwatch is the way to go. Right. So yeah, he gave you a present you had to be thrilled with because you were a good sport, right? You're a mm -hmm. grateful, grateful little fucker. And so then. You had a birthday party or so you had some kind you're playing with your friends. I had some friends over. We were all playing in the front yard. It was summertime. My birthday's in the summer. And we were starting some game which was pretty rough and physical. I'm like, ooh, you know what? I should probably take this watch Responsible off. Responsible child. Yeah. Because it might get damaged and then I'd be heartbroken. And mm -hmm. I used to never take it off. I'd take it off, take a bath, and that was it. I'd yeah. sleep with it. I was loved it. Was it waterproof? No. No, no. Okay, no. That was First generation like, no. digital watches, okay. electronics, right. not okay. waterproof. Okay. Maybe at NASA, you know? Yeah. So I took it. There was no, I didn't want to go inside. We were ready to go in the heat of the moment. I'm just like, oh, you know what? I'll, I don't want to put it on the ground, you know, or like on the front steps. All these places seemed places it would get stepped on you mm -hmm. know so my dad had just gotten back from work and i saw the car was parked in the carport i'm like no problem i'll go put it on the hood of the car right that's a big open space we can see it yeah you know, kids aren't gonna, gonna play on a car yeah. like he's not gonna no one's going anywhere he's home for the night it's under the carport it won't get rained on and i put it there cool went back to play and you know thought no more about it but like when playtime was over and i went back to the car in the carport to get my watch it was gone no it was gone. Just gone. There's nowhere. I looked ever I looked around the car. I looked under the car. I asked my friends. Nope, nope, nope. I went inside to ask my mom. Maybe she saw it. Like she was inside cooking or something. I mean, maybe she came out and said, Oh my goodness, that's a terrible place for Paul's watch. I'll mm -hmm. take it in for safekeeping. I don't want to interrupt his game. Uh, nope, nope, nope. You know, and I remember asking my father about it. I'm like, Have you seen my watch? And he just answered me, Well, where did you see it last? And I told him. Oh, that's so what a dad would say. Where'd yeah, you put it? Like, lose, yeah. You know, like, and anytime you lose something as a kid, well, where's the last place you saw it? And you're like, well, if I knew no, and it yeah, was so, there, we wouldn't well, have this If the last problem. place I saw it was the last place I put it, it'd be in my hand right now. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, and that was infuriating. it. infuriating. And that, that was, was it. it. I had it for maybe a month. Oh, that's so heartbreaking as a 10-year-old. Uh, yeah. All your possessions are very, they mean a lot at that age and maybe later on too, but... 
So then it was Christmas in Switzerland, right? And you liked it because yeah, there was presents yeah, yeah. and dessert, so right? So my Swiss relatives were not as as frugal as my dad, you know? Like everybody's pretty careful with money in Switzerland <laughs> because it's very expensive to live there. It's, right. it's a rich country and everybody's got to work hard. But Christmas... You know, he'd often fly us all to Switzerland. We'd get to see relatives. We grew up, I mean, there. I was the child of immigrants. We had no, like, other family here, mm-hmm. right, in all of Canada. It was like my mom, my dad, my little sister, me. Right. So to visit an uncle or a grandparent or anybody, we had to get on a plane. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of my friends, of course, had, you know, grandparents in the same town or aunts and uncles, like, three streets over. So the extended family was a thing that all of my friends knew about and I didn't. Mm -hmm. So I felt very fortunate when we'd get to go to Switzerland, we'd get spoiled a bit and there was, you know, they had TV, they had dessert and these are things we didn't have at home. TV and dessert, okay. Oh yeah, both. Because then my dad had the money for both those things, but not the values that would allow him to spend money on those things. And uh, Switzerland is a great place for Christmas as a kid. Uh, you have a real Christmas tree with real candles that you get to light wow. indoors. You <laughs> I'm know, with like of candles, but that's this, I can know, see that being festive. Yeah, it's beautiful, and as it turned out, you know, we get presents from all all, all, the, all the relatives, and a lot of the times they didn't know us very well, so we usually get like fifteen bars of awesome Swiss chocolate. Right. But the last little gift I open is a little box from my dad, and it's a digital watch. <laughs> And I'm thrilled. He's like, I'm like, oh my God, he replaced my digital watch. I've got a digital watch again. So thoughtful. It was amazing. I'm like, I wasn't even annoyed that it's the same gift. I'm like, yes, I've just got one again. Yeah, Um, a redo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I'm looking at the box and I noticed that there's the little label sticker is a little bit torn off. And I remember that's actually exactly the way that I tore the label sticker off when I opened my digital watch box on my birthday. And I realized it's the same watch. He regifted it. He regifted me my birthday present as my Christmas present. Because he took it from the car hood. I totally took it from the car hood and didn't tell me about it. Like he, I, he just decided that was an irresponsible place for it. And he would teach me a lesson about taking better care of my valuables. And then he waited six months. Yeah, that's that's a bit mean, right? Like, No, it's not a bit mean. It's a lot mean. It's mean, yeah. And then like what I liked about this story is then you didn't, you weren't like, oh, I forgive my dad. He's actually, I mean, I'm sure he's a good person in some ways, but like you didn't wrap it up with a bow. You were kind of like, fuck that shit. Like <laughs> that was a dick move. And then what was the line? If you can remember, it was like, you realized that uh, you oh, could yeah. only come to your dad for lessons and not for- Well, yeah, I, I I was like, wait, my Christmas gift is a lesson? Like this, this sucks. This is not a good gift. Um, and, and I finished the story- as if I was still an 11 year old boy, because a lot of the times our parents try to parent us and teach us lessons in certain ways that make sense from the mind of an adult, but you're at an age as a child where that's just not the lesson you get. You know, people talk a lot about that in in training pets. You Mm -hmm. know, you have to make sure that the consequence matches the crime, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Um, And that's a thing that for instance, most schools do very badly. Right. right. Like, oh, yeah. you were late for class and the whole like, classroom doesn't get to go outside a recess. You're like, what the hell? And like toddlers too. It's like the toddler can't remember that far back. They don't understand why like they're being deprived. Of yeah. It'd be it like, doesn't... it'd be like bopping your dog on the nose because he took a crap on the, on the doormat four days ago. Yeah. He's like, I guess my owner hates me. I, I have no idea. So yeah, the lesson I took was, was just the immediate lesson I could draw from this bombshell moment of getting my birthday watch back again at Christmas, which is, oh, okay, my father is a thief <laughs> and a liar <laughs> and cannot be trusted. And I clearly can't rely on him to take care of my feelings, so I'm going to have to take care of them myself. That's sad. Yeah. Well, I remember talking to you and some of the other people in the audience in the March right. confabulation. And because I had an idea for a couple of stories. One of them was the digital watch story. And most of the stories we had seen that we had heard that night were like fairly upbeat, mm-hmm. or if not outright funny. And I remember asking you and some other people like, is there is there room at this event for, for you know, a, a downer story or a tragic story? Do people sometimes tell sad stories? Oh God, do they ever? Really and, sad stories. Yeah. And, there, <laughs> and you assured me that there were. Tragic. Like, okay, great. Well, yeah. then I will, I'm going to lean into this one and... I've now seen enough of them live and a few on the YouTube channel 
that I've seen some stories that I thought were great and powerful and moving and actually quite dramatic. And I've seen a couple of storytellers take this weird left turn in the last 30 seconds where they actually try to wrap it up with a bow and, mm-hmm. and make it happy. And Have I'm like, yo, that's not, that's not the, yeah. It's just my opinion as a storyteller. That's not where this story needed to go. Like we we all want to have a happy ending in our lives, you know, of whatever the event was. But sometimes it just isn't. And the lesson I got as an 11-year-old from that story was not a happy lesson. You know, it was a moment of enlightenment. I learned a little bit more about the kind of father that I had and what he thought was a good way to do things and what the cost of that was for me and how I needed to adapt my behavior to, you know, not thrive that's a pretty harsh environment to thrive in but at least survive Mm. so i'm like that's the story you know what and i i had a great time at confabulation the audience was so generous and warm it was a great audience there was so many there was laughter and audible noises of empathy during some of the harder points um so it was a such a welcome confirmation that okay there's there's something here like this is a story that isn't just me whining no it was relatable because yeah i mean i think that a lot of a lot of us didn't get what we needed in um, our childhood. And yeah, so like, yeah, how do you how do you make it so that your, your childhood experiences don't fill into other relationships? Like, yeah, how do you not grow up like a bitter, upset person? <laughs> I think a lot of us do grow up a bit bitter, bitter and, upset. and upset. Yeah, I saw this this post on social media about a year ago that just hit me so hard. It was a woman who was talking about something that had happened in her her therapy session with her therapist. And I guess she had been telling a story about either her own childhood or about something that was happening with one of her children. Mm-hmm. She was a mother. And the therapist said, well, you know, children are very resilient. Oh no, that's the thing. Children are not very resilient. That actually just, I, I think of, I and I have my own experiences, but other people's childhoods. And I'm just like, my little friends, like, I feel so sad for them. Like, even just something simple like parents fighting. Oh, I shouldn't say this. I don't want to make people who fight feel bad. But it's like... Well, a, they're fighting. They already feel bad. Yeah. They might and, not be aware that it's it's a sadness or a grief that's coming out as anger, but they already feel bad. But, like, but they're certainly kids, not thinking like, about what it's like. When you're little, like, some of my earliest memories are of my parents yelling at each other. And you just, like, go into a room and you don't know what to do. And you're, like, three. Like, it's like... And, and people, like, just parents, I don't know, like, I, I think that it's total sports to have a kid. I don't have one. I find being a grown-up is challenging enough, and I, you know, don't, like, judge parents. Well, maybe I do a little bit. It's like, I think that people take on more than they can handle when they have kids and they're not ready for it. But, yeah, like, I don't know. So, children being emotionally, yeah, so we, like, have our parents maybe or boyfriends girlfriends who like might have emotional the emotional intelligence of I once I once was dating somebody and my friend was like that move was like an emotional this guy had this the emotional intelligence of an anteater and I really appreciated that I was like that's that's exactly how I feel why why would he have done that and so how do you make sure that you have like how do you have a 10 year old how do you not scar him for life I guess like what do you what do you do to be attuned to the people in your life, including your child, but also, you know, friends, partners, that kind of thing? This is um, this is actually a big part of my solo show. Not so much the, the parenting child thing, mm-hmm. um, but, uh, but being emotionally attuned or being even aware of, of my emotions. Like I said, the, that, that therapist told her patient, oh, children are very resilient. I find that's a platitude that people throw out, just toss off, whenever an adult is describing treating a child in a cruel way or in a way where their needs, the child's needs are not being met. Not like straight up spanking. No one's like, oh, you know, spanking builds resilience. We're we're thankfully past that. But when this therapist said to her patient, oh, you know, children are very resilient. The patient answered, well, if that's true, how come so many adults need therapy? (laughs) <laughs> and then she goes, her therapist was quiet for a long time and seemed to be gazing off into the middle distance as she reconsidered a great many things. And that hit me so hard. I'm like, we say that. But just because a kid learns to shut up and obey the rules doesn't mean that damage wasn't done and that the pain wasn't real. And I don't know how to do it, how to be a parent that's that's different than the way a lot of 
a lot of how we were, were raised was. I think that sometimes, especially modern parenting is so intensive. It's this other job we're supposed to optimize, like our fitness and our career and yeah, our house, yeah, and it's very which exhausting. I think is not a great and way to look at it. And then people make a full-time job of judging parents for of not course. doing a good job. I, I've read some studies that show that parents actually have much less influence and impact on their children growing up yeah. to be a certain kind of adult than they might imagine. Like, aren't you allowed to fuck up quite a lot? Like, there's, like, the, the, the good enough mother. They only have to be attuned, like, 30%. And then the other 70%, as long as you repair your fuck-ups, you're good to go. I was, I mean, I studied science in university. I have a bachelor's degree in biology. And one of the things that that taught me was an appreciation for not only how the scientific method arrives at truths and facts you can rely on, but also how science evolves. So... One of the things that good scientists do very well is they stay skeptical and they stay humble. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, sensationalist media sources don't. So they'll often trumpet the latest study about the thing you just mentioned, 30%, 70%, devoid of any context or nuance. Right. Or yeah. the fact that five years from now, other studies will come out and be like, yeah, actually the study design there was super flawed and that conclusion makes no sense. What I know is that, and I got this from a, from a, in a former relationship, um, she told me, no one can tell you your emotions are wrong or bad. Oh, you you nice. always get to feel what you're feeling. And and no one gets to tell you that you're feeling the wrong things. Now, with children, we can discuss whether they're expressing that emotion in a helpful or an inappropriate way. If they're expressing it by like hitting other people, then obviously you have to rein that in pretty quickly. But the fact that they're upset, they get to own that. And the same thing is true for adults. So one thing I've done with my son is to be really careful to just let him feel what he's feeling. You know, I never tell him to cheer up when he's down. Yeah. You know, like cheer up. When, <laughs> Why he, the long face? <laughs> right. It's like, it's like, you know, never in the history of calming down has telling someone to calm down helped oh, them calm I know. down. Anytime so, somebody says that to me, I just, sh no, it doesn't work well. So one thing I learned early on from other things, I actually learned this from studying and then teaching self-defense classes for, for women was in the verbal and psychological part of an interaction, if someone's arguing with you or, or someone's upset and there's a problem that needs to be solved, you shouldn't try to start by changing their mind. You start by changing their mood. Let's say change the mood, not the mind. Mm. And what that means usually is giving them space to express it. Often all a person needs is an extra 30 seconds to vent what's bubbling up inside of them, right? Like you wouldn't tell a person who was laughing hysterically and having super fun, okay, that's enough laughter, stop now. Well, some like, parents would do that maybe, sure, but... you know. So I let him know that his... And I let him know with words and actions that his... All his expression, all his emotions are fine. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm never going to be angry at him for feeling a certain way. I also let him know that my love for him, my affection, my my consideration, my my protection, because when little kids are little, that's one of the things that parents do, is they're the thing that keep you safe from the scary rest of the world, that my love for him is not conditional on his good behavior. Mm -hmm. I'm not suddenly going to be mad at him or stop loving him or take away affection or, you know, because because of something he did that I that was against the rules, mm -hmm. you know. The other thing is lots of love and hugs and kisses and cuddles. You know, humans, and I know this from my studies, first of all, we're social mammals, you know, yeah. just like cats and dogs, well, dogs, not so much cats or, or, you know, otters or, or deer or all these animals that live in social groups and big groups, you know, mm -hmm. big clans and primates even more so, you know, monkeys, apes, baboons, lemurs, they tend to live in big groups, orangutans with a weird exception, but humans are by far the most hyper social species on the planet and touch and affection and, and interaction with humans, often it's relational. We talk, you know, we look each other in the eye. There's not a bunch of, we're not picking lice out of each other's yeah. fur, but it's a huge need. We're the most hyper-social species on the planet and Western culture is notoriously touch averse. Yeah. Everybody's rocking a huge physical affection touch. deficit. And I'm not talking about yeah. sex. I'm talking about hugs and, and casual you know, and casual expressions like of affection. hands on your back type well, thing. Well, you know, yeah. like when like you see moms, you just caress your child, right? Or, or yeah. you hug them or, you know, you pat them on the back. And we live in a culture that for, for very good reasons of, you know, sexual harassment, inappropriate touching, power dynamics, has really put the brakes on that. But done so with an alarming lack of nuance. Yeah. And yeah, like, I think a lot of us are a bit sad and lonely. Yeah. Huh. And it's not our fault. We didn't do anything wrong. 
We're right. just growing up in a culture that for bizarre, I think, horribly misguided and toxic reasons have, have made that aspect of something that's in our genes and in our makeup into something that we need to jump through a bunch of hoops and go through very thin, narrow pathways to get to. Recently, and I, I'm a very, very patient parent. Like my, I've, you know, I've raised my voice with my child almost never. And the few times that like the, the, the alpha male dad bark comes out, he knows are times where he's in imminent danger. Yeah. Right. For me too, like, when I worked with kids, it was you're like, about to walk into traffic. I'm going to yell and I'm going to grab you. It, was, it process always had it later. to do with it. It always had, for me, it always had to do with that airway being blocked. Like one exactly. time this kid Someone's came, choking she someone. went to strangle this kid. I was like, Sydney, stop. Or like one time there was a, there was a rope and mm-hmm. a kid was like, and I shouldn't, it didn't help to yell, but it was like, he was wrap. He was coiling himself up with the skipping rope around his neck, and I was like, "Oh my god, you have to stop!" And it scared. It wasn't the best to raise, but sometimes you have to raise. No, your voice but a strangulation bit. happens fast, right? Yeah, and so kids I, do dumb things like like fast. They, they do things really dumb fast. Yeah, yeah, and and I've known like there's a certain tone of voice I can use. I taught kung fu to kids for like 10, 15 years, right? And I was always very soft spoken, jokey very mm-hmm. kind teacher and very rarely I'd have to bust out the like military bark and again it was at a time where somebody was about to do something that was going to get somebody hurt badly yeah or make a terrible mistake and that's a physiological thing you know I can use that tone of voice and the child will just freeze and like am I are they living a moment of trauma yeah maybe but I'm preventing a much, much bigger problem. I can't, yeah, like I brain like, damage. Or, right, the yeah. kid, the parent comes back 45, 45 minutes later, where's your kid? Oh, they're in the ER Yeah, yeah. <laughs> with a skull so, fracture. So, But fair. I didn't want to raise my voice though, <laughs> right? So there's definitely that. Recently, I lost my cool with him. I was being super patient the whole time. And one of the mistakes I make is I just stay even on a super even level, even mm-hmm. when I'm starting to get vexed or it's getting frustrating. And I've realized now that he maybe doesn't notice that he's starting to like push my buttons too much. And it'd be better if I started to give gradually go, gradients. okay, I'm getting, I'm getting annoyed now. You right. know, we've talked about this a lot. You, I, you're 10. I know you understand mm-hmm. why this has to happen this way. You know, brushing your teeth is not negotiable or whatever. It wasn't yeah. about toothbrushing, but um, I lost my cool. I got angry with him, but super quickly in the, in, in the first few seconds of the anger, I just had this instinct to express the pain I was feeling as crying instead. Mm. And, you know, boys and men are socialized at a very young age to just not cry. Yeah, I've never seen my dad cry, not once. Right, well, apparently his life's going great then, right? My dad's life? Maybe not. Mm, I don't know. He's was. I was joking. Obviously, like, you know, men and women have the same range of, of emotional feelings but men are taught at a young age to curtail their emotional expression quite a bit Mm -hmm. but that changed everything you know as soon as i was crying like he was he was on the couch super annoyed and and starting to get a bit cryy because i was getting angry and i just like flopped down on the chair next to him and started crying and and using my words like i'm so sad about this i want us to be getting along i want etc 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 i just said my words and it changed everything almost immediately Hmm. like i know that parentification is a bad thing when a, oh yeah yeah you know when a parent i've, I've a watched child some confabulation stories to, where the children have been to take responsibility for their parents yeah. problems and that's not what i do and that's not what i did then but mm-hmm. he just very naturally came to me and said oh papa's in distress well right let me see if i can help and i'll mm. give him a hug and then we just held each other a bunch and talked through it and we got to a much better place much more quickly so i'll start with that if if i want him to be able to keep expressing all of his emotions like a normal human should, then it starts with me as well, right? I need to express that as well. Yeah. Children need to feel that their parents are able to keep them safe. Yeah. But they shouldn't grow up with the misapprehension that their parents are infallible and invincible. Like, Yeah. We fail. We make mistakes. And we can own those mistakes. And then there's another way to like embody a good lesson. Well, how do you, how do you fix that? Right. Yeah. It seems like the repair is very important. And maybe we missed that step, some of us. Yeah. Well, I don't want to talk about my childhood too much. (laughs) Yeah. So emotionally intelligent dads and children. Okay. Now, I guess the next part. Oh, I stalked you on Instagram. Mm -hmm. Did you stalk me too? Not really, eh? That's okay. I don't don't know what what qualifies as stalking. You just like you look at old posts and you're like, you know. 
I think the difference between like taking an interest and stalking is measured in duration. Okay. Yeah. But I'll take it as a compliment. Okay. So you didn't stalk me. I forgive you. I looked at a bunch of your posts. Okay, cool. Okay. Yeah. You have yeah. nice posts. Good job. Keep Great. it going. Great. Thank you. They're, yeah. I, they're actually, if you feel validated by my stalking, then I'm happy I, to yeah. do that for you. Thank you. So yeah. And I met you three times, but my impressions, I have three impressions. I thought you have solid routines, a tender heart. Also, I forgot to mention this. You also have a steamer to clean your walls with, which I felt was very riveting. And you also seem very confident. And maybe that's just like the theater, you know, public speaking skills. But do you have any advice for somebody who wants to become more confident? Yeah, it's never going to happen. You have it or you don't. Oh, really? That's it? (laughs) No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Okay. Um, I just thought it would be funny and maybe needlessly cruel. I barely have any formal theater training. Okay. I did high school drama. And what little training I do have is almost entirely in the realm of stunt fighting and stage combat and fight choreography. Okay. So it would be acting training about how to effectively portray, safely and effectively portray acts of violence. Okay. Which, you know, I don't know if that counts. I have a lot of friends who are actors, obviously. I have great respect for the amount of training they've done and the amount of constant work they put into, you know, acting. I can't be bothered to pretend to be anybody else except myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I will say about confidence is something that I learned, again, from from practicing Kung Fu for so long. Confidence comes from competence. Okay. At least that's one path to it. So Malcolm Gladwell has that book about the theory that to achieve excellence in anything requires 10,000 hours of deliberate practice. Mm-hmm. Whether it's chess or surgery or golf or playing ukulele. And I've, I've done the math. I've accumulated probably 10,000 hours of teaching Kung Fu, which means I've accumulated that many hours of standing in front of a group of strangers and holding their attention in a positive way and getting them to do things that would be good for them. Now, it helps if the first crowds you practice on are people that you're allowed to punch. They're very well behaved. Mm -hmm. And you have martial arts culture has a complete strict hierarchy of authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. So uh, that helped. Having said that, I know that many of, of my Kung Fu brothers who are also instructors and are very confident, wonderful, brilliant people are still not necessarily thrilled about public speaking. Whereas I've... I don't know. If I had stage fright, I don't have it anymore. It's been, okay. it's been 10, 20 years. You know, like we, I, I've hosted banquets for in front of 400 people. You, you didn't, MC you don't weddings. get nervous before? Like you didn't get nervous before confabulation? You're just like, I got this? I don't want to say I had zero nerves, but You I, slept the night before. I did not. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I sleep really well in general. I, I no, I mean, I had a tiny bit of nerves but it was, it was, I would say, the right kind that helped her performance. But no, public speaking, standing in front of a group of people, no. Okay. Is there I'm anything not... you get nervous about? Like, what are you not confident about? Um, it's not, I mean, I'm generally confident in social situations. Having said that, I am, I grew up really, really, really shy. Okay. Super shy. You know, I was like the nerdy, weird, tiny, brown, skinny kid in class. And it, like I said, it was only around you know, college, university that I managed to shed all the years of history and identity of of elementary school and then high school and, and get to portray myself as, as, as a more normal, cool kid. But I'm, I'm super, for instance, I'm super shy uh, in romantic relationships. Like, I don't okay. think I've ever walked up to a woman I don't know at a party or a bar and struck up a conversation. Huh. You know, at a bar, definitely not. At a house party, maybe. That's kind of Quebec too, though, right? Like somebody said that like in Montreal, like men don't initiate. And I was like, is that true? Is that why I've been single for like a million years? I mean, they definitely don't. I don't know (laughs) if they initiate more in the rest of Canada. I know that if you go to the Southern European countries, these people initiate like they're just falling out of bed, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, But but that's one area where I'm very, very shy or, or less so now. And areas where I lack confidence, again, they're areas where I lack competence. So when I stopped teaching Kung Fu about nine years ago and shifted towards, you know, working as a business writer and doing copywriting and translation and that sort of thing, I I just didn't have the skills to invoice properly or do my income tax. So I have a lot of weird 
limiting false beliefs about money and whether I'm good enough and, and getting stuff done on time. So I have a lot of issues there where I don't know if it's a lack of confidence, but there's certainly a lack of timely execution. <laughs> timely. Okay. All right. Yeah, that's funny. I guess like some people, yeah, some people are very, I'm very good at doing my taxes on time. I, I do this. I do this in February. I don't know how I, and then I think, wow. yeah, you take, you take for granted the things you're very good at. Like I'm very good at always buying toilet paper. Like I never run out of toilet paper, you know, like, you know, I don't, I don't let the baseboards get furry. Like it's just like routines. I'm pretty good at routines, but then like everything else, I, I don't know. Just every, like even with, with some, even with some 10,000 hours, I just feel like the confidence is maybe not there, but then some people say that being sort of insecure and being confident are kind of two sides of the same coin, that people who are insecure are actually kind of like arrogant because they think they should be so awesome all the time. Like they think they should, instead of just being like a regular ordinary person, they feel like they need to be exceptional. So there's a bit of like narcissism or arrogance there. I don't know. Well, I had a math teacher in college. He's this funny Eastern European accent and he said something to me that i always remembered it's obviously a, a, a cliche but he said whoever discovered water it certainly wasn't a fish <laughs> in, in the sense that the thing that we know best the thing that surrounds us our whole lives is often the thing that we can't notice right and in some cases that can be the lessons we absorbed about our worth or about money or about hard work from our parents you know, you grow up in nuclear family, maybe you have a mom and dad, maybe you just have one parent, but they're the default adults, right? right. As a child, you grow up, you imprint, and that's the default grown-up setting, right? Your, your father is... A default grown-up setting, that's, that's what That's what a grown-up human male is supposed to be like. Your mom, that's what a human female looks like. You know, their marriage, that's what marriages are oh, like, no. right? And, you know, my sister and I, my younger sister, we've talked a lot about this now that we're grown-ups and have had, you know, failed marriages of our own that we were never really aware of just how much we absorbed from watching our parents have a long-lasting, low-conflict, low-affection, unhappy marriage. Right. And it's like, oh, well, just you need to put up with a lot. Yeah. Because there's and not, as both, long as you're Both my sister and I stayed in very bad relationships for many more years than we needed to. Because um, it wasn't an emergency. There was no like, it just seemed like the status quo. You know, for, for, there could be a million reasons and everybody's story of a relationship is different and they're all unique and, and beautiful and maybe broken in their own ways. But, you know, growing up in a household where two people who did not enjoy living together or being married and stayed together for, you know, 15 years longer than they should have Ugh. was certainly not a helpful role model. That's not a good default setting. <laughs> no. I think I think this is a good time to do our listener question. Okay. Are you ready? I am. Okay. So, I mean, <clears throat> names and identifying details have been changed. Dear Erica and Paul, I am about to enter my 36 to 40 age bracket. I spent my 31 to 35 age bracket with a boyfriend I'll call old man dad, OMD. <laughs> I tend to refer to my partners as old men or dads because I seem to need supervision and reassurance through standard adult tasks. I can relate to this. Um, me and OMD have always had great chemistry, but there have been red flags from the start. He has a complicated relationship with his volatile ex who is controlling and financially manipulative. She calls all the shots in terms of custody, so my, my boyfriend is almost never available on evenings and weekends. There's a ton of unspeakable drama. OMD also has chronic financial distress. Whenever I express concern or frustration that we don't get to spend much quality time together, he bites my head off. He tends to put me down for being too needy and demanding, and he criticizes me for having slept with other people before we got together, I mean, this is standard, and during breaks in our relationship. When I try to stick up for myself, he says I am too sensitive. We have probably broken up 49 times in the last four years, but I'm never able to call it quits for good. I love him and believe he's a good person, but I don't want to spend my 36 to 40 age bracket in a relationship that will never meet my needs. What should I do? Love attached. That's a wow. doozy. Poor it is attached. a doozy. Okay. 
Oof. Hi. So guess what? We are going to leave you with that thrilling cliffhanger. But fear not, because you won't need to wait to hear Paul's rather ruthless, but but quite wise advice to Attached. So if all went well, I've dropped both episodes already wherever the episode is available fingers crossed um a few a few hurdles to jump over before that happens but I think I've done it and so you can just download the episode right away and hear what Paul recommends for attached and yeah lots of love to attached because it's not an easy situation so yeah go download the episode and beyond our listener question we have a lot of talk about creativity, routines, morning routines, writing routines. And Paul has a pretty refreshing and, you know, potentially liberating approach to getting getting your creative work done, getting especially your writing in. So if you're a writer or you're trying to get something done, you won't want to miss it. It was it was wonderful. And now I just want to do a little a little debrief of what it was like, just a little meta moment as my podcasting debut progresses. And yeah, I guess like what I will say, I, I am so grateful to have this outlet. I'm having such a wonderful time. I am noticing, I guess like it is a skill and I am finding that I'm a bit nervous when there's all the the microphones and I'm the one doing the levels. I don't have a sound engineer, obviously. And so I find that I don't always like relax. I think a little parts, sometimes I relax and sometimes I don't. Uh, We had a little technical issue because the power went out, like as the power seems to do in Montreal these days. And so there was like this chirping smoke, uh, the smoke alarm. And I was like, what is that? So, I mean, yeah, I guess like I always kind of berated myself and mourned that I didn't get to be one of those chill types of people who goes with the flow but I guess this is good practice yeah and I'm I'm gonna work on my interview skills like this is my I guess only my second interview and like I noticed I think both Paul and I are very (laughs) chatty kind of on the extroverted side we both had a lot to say so I find that I didn't always anticipate like when he was finished talking so I think you kind of have to err on the side of the pause and just give people the chance to say everything like Brene Brown she calls her podcast the pause cast so I think that's like an adjustment to learn how to really give people the space to talk and shine but I think I think we both still had a really good time and what was the other thing I wanted to say oh well if you have a listener question oh my goodness so that is a real dream I have always wanted to be an advice columnist so this is almost the closest I've ever gotten so if you have a listener question please send it to me you can find me on the interwebs at erica.j.schmidt on Instagram I'm on Facebook Erica J. Schmidt and I also have a website ericajschmidt.com slash contact so yeah you can get in touch with me and ask your question and you can conceal your identity or if you're like hey I just want this to be a little more private I will change identifying details I've written a novel I can do this and yeah so then we'll give you advice and it doesn't have to be really heavy either like if you have something kind of mundane that's that's stressing you out let me know I'd love to answer your question and what else do I have to say um We're going to get into Paul's show next in the next episode, but please follow Paul, post it Paul on Instagram. And then he is playing his show is at the freestanding room in June. We're going to put all the show times in the show notes. Please go to his show. And then the last thing I want to say is that this is your strange and beautiful life is an independent podcast. And so, well, we don't have any sponsors yet. It's brand fucking new. So if you would like to sponsor the show, we'd be delighted to plug your product or service as long as it is, you know, not harmful to people's bodies or their hearts. So you can get in touch with me and let me know. And meanwhile, we have a little bit of merch. It is at my website, ericajschmidt.com slash merch. 
It's dog cards. So speaking of like transforming your despair into creativity, I went to the drugstore. I printed off my favorite dog photos of my favorite dogs. And now I have cards that you can order for $6 each. And so that is, you know, it's kind of fun. You can put them on your fridge and it's a way to support the podcast. But just listening is such a dream to me that you made it all the way to the end. I am so thankful. I can't even tell you this place is, this podcast is a dream come true. This is a lot of thank yous. I guess I'll learn to be more succinct another time. So what have we got? We got the merch and sponsors. Okay. And then the last thing is I want to thank my sister, Tess Levitt, for helping me with the inspiration for this podcast. I want to thank my dear, cherished pal, Sherwin Tija, also known as Joe the Catman on Facebook and the founder of all the quirky events. But thank you for being my creative and technical advisor. And thank you also to my dear departed aunt, Eileen Gunn. Uh, So it was thanks to Eileen's generous surprise gift that I was able to purchase some microphones and podcast equipment. And like I said, that has been a dream come true. I've always wanted to have a podcast. So thank you so much for listening and love you so much. Okay, let's let's play our let's play ourselves out. Ready? So please sing along, okay? This is your strange and beautiful life. That's it. Love you. Bye. Love you. Bye.